0: Episode four of knife after death. And today we're going to talk about how pathologists determine the cause and manner of death. Um, I want to start out by saying that, uh, sorry, I couldn't put out episodes over the last couple of weeks. Um, as many of you know, I had a medical emergency that I had to tend to, but as you can see, I, I have survived and, uh, thankfully I, um, seem to be doing okay right now, and I feel well enough to uh, sit down in front of the microphone and record this new episode that I've been uh, wanting to do for a while. So um, I'll talk about what happened at some other point, um, probably in the future. I don't know how relevant it is, uh, but uh, some people like to know the things that I go through, and you know, we kind of share a commonality in that we all uh don't feel well at different times uh one time or the other and we go through things and you know we we can understand each other better when we realize that uh we unfortunately being human means uh having a a balance between feeling good and feeling bad and at the end of feeling bad is where the forensic pathologist comes in uh when when death occurs and that's what we're going to talk about today um, I've been starting the last couple of episodes, I think, with a recap of, um, what we did last time. Uh, and of course we, as you know, we listened and, uh, we talked about the, um, differences between corpses and cadavers. And the reason why I'm doing these kind of introductory, uh, lectures is so that we can all be on the same footing when we go forward and things get more complex. Okay. Okay. Uh, Because I've had a few people ask about, um, you know, when are you going to start talking about interesting celebrity cases or true crime? Because this podcast comes up in true crime searches. And uh, the truth is, we will get to that at some point. But um, I kind of feel like for us to best understand what is happening, what I'm talking about, um, to best characterize the death that we're talking about and how that evidence is gathered and interpreted, you have to have some basic knowledge of forensics. And um, so that's what this, you know, a lot of this first season is kind of a primer on uh, forensic basics uh, with respect to the forensic autopsy. There are many areas of forensics, as you know, uh, dozens of subfields of forensics uh, with regards to uh, evidence collection and interpretation Um, I will at some point address those subfields, but of course my main area of expertise is that of the forensic autopsy. So that's where we're going to begin today. We're going to talk about what is the essential goal of the forensic pathologist. And uh, even those who don't really know a lot about what I do know that I do autopsy. One of the things I'm very interested in when I do when somebody finds out that I'm a forensic pathologist is, is that, um, they, they know I do autopsies mostly, and they don't really know what else that involves. Um, you know, very commonly people will jokingly say, oh, okay, so you chop up bodies uh, all day. And that's sort of the joke that, you know, obviously I've heard 4 million times and, um, it's difficult to even laugh at this point. Um, so when you find out somebody's a forensic pathologist, maybe come up with a new uh, way to, you know, address that jokingly. Um, I was recently in the hospital and almost everyone I talked to uh, in terms of the healthcare staff, which did a very good job by the way, but they really uh, did not know what forensic pathology was. Um, uh, one of the things I'm going to talk about in an episode this season is about how to become a forensic pathologist and also um, what the scope of that is. And, and the, the thing is most people don't realize that we're actually medical doctors. Um, uh, forensic pathologists have to go and become a physician either through an MD school or a DO school. You have to have those credentials. And what shocks me is I've had doctors who actually did not realize that. Um, That's pretty sad, really, when you think about it. Um, You can't become a forensic pathologist without becoming a a pathologist first. And I think most people realize that pathologist is med school. Uh, But some people uh, tend to think that forensic pathology is like a trade school or something. But it's actually a very long and drawn-out training, uh, many years of training uh, after high school. I think it's uh, 13 after high school, if I remember correctly. Um, but we're going to get to that. Um, I might even do it for the next episode. I don't know, but, uh, I get so many questions every week on how to become a forensic pathologist because, um, it's a very popular thing. It's a very interesting career for young people and they always want to uh, find out how to do that. And so I have, um, been asked, I mean, untold number of times. It's definitely the most common question I get every week. I made a YouTube video on it, uh, but frankly, I think that YouTube video kind of sucks. Um, so I'm going to do an entire podcast episode, and I think that'll be um, a much more relaxed pace, and I can cover things more comprehensively. All right. So, what is the essential goal of the forensic pathologist? Um, the, of course, it's to conduct an autopsy a death investigation but ultimately it's the creation of the final report which is a legal document and that final report contains all the information that can be used by so many different uh, entities uh, law enforcement um, obviously in court you're going to need all that information insurance companies um, uh, vital statistics health statistics so the autopsy report is is the what I do on every single uh, patient that I have to autopsy. And um, the bottom line is the cause and manner of death. And that's what this episode is about. And a lot of people have heard that, cause and manner, but they don't really understand what the difference is. And I know that even as a medical student and even when I got into pathology residency, I did not know... Uh, What the difference between cause and manner was. So I felt that this would be a good thing to do today to talk about the differences between the cause and manner of death so that you can understand uh, a little bit better about how they're created and how they're interpreted. Um, There's been a lot of talk about cause of death, Um, not so much manner, but cause of death recently, because we've seen um, some high-profile cases in the news which um, have, you know, have been uh, somewhat sensitive cases, uh, socially speaking, other high-profile deaths where the cause is debated. And then uh, most recently, of course, we're in the middle of a pandemic right now, a global pandemic, and there's uh, some controversy about how cause of death is assigned um, in cases that may involve COVID. I'm going to hit that toward the end of this podcast. Um and so but first let's go ahead and talk about manner of death first because that's a little bit easier to understand I think. Manner of death is the general category within which the death um it can be categorized, okay? Um so there are five main manners of death and we're going to go over those um you know kind of systematically. Um it's not too difficult to understand manner But it's a little more difficult sometimes to assign the proper manner. So let's just go over the five manners of death. Um, First is natural death. Um, As a forensic pathologist, I probably, uh, my most common case uh, would be a natural death. And these are deaths due to an underlying Either known or unknown disease process. So this could be something like um, heart disease, like atherosclerotic heart disease um, or hypertensive heart disease, uh, complications of diabetes mellitus. Um, you know, so there's um, COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease from or emphysema from you know thirty years of smoking. Um, cancer, of course. Um, so, you know, the these are diseases that are kind of the basic underlying disease that people can have and there are um you know thousands of different um different types of diseases that you can have which can ultimately result in death. And we'll talk about um cause because even with cause we like to kind of put them in general categories. But I think natural death is the most easy to understand and we will talk Um, I'm going to do some examples here in a few minutes where we're just going to go over um, actual clinical scenarios that I've had of cases, and then we'll kind of talk about um, how the manner is assigned in those cases. So we've got natural, and next is the accident, and uh, this is a very broad category. I know that when I say accident, the first thing uh, many of you think of would be something like a motor vehicle accident or um, involving a car, truck, semi, motorcycle, that, that kind of thing. But accident is actually um, one of the broadest categories, probably the most broad category, because it's really a death which is um, uninte- unintended and unexpected. So this could be anything. It could be, um, as we said, a motor vehicle accident, but it could be an electrocution It could be a drowning, which is, drowning is a very common death we see during the summer, Uh, falling off of a cliff, um, even something like an animal attack. So you're um, attacked by a um, tiger or you're bitten by a venomous snake or something like that. So um, accident, definitely um, a a broad category, but uh, perhaps the most easy to assign uh, manner of death because as I said, these are unintended and unexpected deaths. Um, they, they, The circumstances are often obvious at the scene. That's not always the case. Um, and as we go on and we learn more as we do this podcast, um, I will make this increasingly complex. Not today exactly, because I want you to learn first the basics. But as we go in the future and we talk about uh, cause and manner, We will; uh, they can become increasingly um, difficult to discern. Where you can have um, board-certified forensic pathologists like myself um, disagreeing on how to arrive at cause and manner in on certain issues. Not everything is black and white Um, in this world today, in particular in the United States. um, We want; it seems like uh, people want things to be absolute, black, white, yes, no and um unfortunately that does not reflect reality um so moving on we have suicide and suicide of course we all know what suicide means it is um self-explanatory um and it involves uh, the idea of uh killing oneself in fact one of the interesting uh little phrases i saw in the Medical Legal Investigation of Death textbook, um, the so-called Spitz or the Bible of Forensic Pathology, they refer to it as self-murder. I'm, it's kind of an interesting way to think about it. But the idea is, is taking one's life um, of their own volition. And these are, uh, you know, the, the usual kind of things we see with these are gunshot wounds and hangings are probably number one and number two. I see gunshot wound and hanging the most, and then you'll see things uh, like jumping from a from a height, from from the top of a parking garage or a building would be very common. Um, Drug overdose would be very common, and then less commonly you see what we call sharp force trauma. So someone may be stabbing into their neck or slicing their wrists or things like that. Um, But you know uh, the most common. Things we're going to see are are gunshot wounds. Sometimes suicide cases can be difficult to um, basically sign out because if it's unwitnessed, um, there can be a situation where you don't know if it was an accidental uh, death or if it was an obvious um, intended death. Now, if somebody leaves a note, you know, the the so-called Goodbye Crew World note, and they are found dead in a locked residence with a gun in their hand, and it's clearly a contact gunshot wound. It's very easy. Uh, but sometimes there are um, extenuating circumstances which make um, the manner determination um, ambiguous. And sometimes we have to call those undetermined, and then we kind of write a little note explaining why that is. Um, and so suicide, we will definitely talk more about in the future. Uh, homicide. This is the one that most people think about for forensic pathology, and I think that that is in large part due to pop culture. Pop culture, of course, we have um, so many shows involving um, death investigation and forensics, and we always see that in movies, and they're always, or almost always murders, right? Um, the, I think this is, though, the dividing line between forensic pathology and regular old anatomic autopsy pathology. Um, autopsy pathologists or regular surgical pathologists in hospitals can perform autopsies in particular with natural deaths and um, very obvious things like suicides and accidents. but you have to have an extra level of training uh, to do homicide cases and the and uh, pediatric cases as well. Um, Murders in pediatric cases—you have to be a board-certified forensic pathologist. So, homicide um, is death occurring at the hands of another. Um, so, you know, it's—it sounds obvious, right? When you think of homicide, you think of somebody shooting somebody else, or choking somebody else, or uh, somebody taking a baseball bat and beating somebody else. But uh, that's—it's not always um, murder. Homicide can actually. Remember, the definition is death at the hands of another person it doesn't always mean intent. Um, like, for instance, uh, somebody who might have a, uh, a gun that they didn't know was loaded and they pointed at somebody else and they pulled the trigger as a joke. Um, I know that sounds a little bit morbid to say as a joke, but I mean, this happens a lot. I do these autopsies a lot and um, I've seen that happen many times. And uh, then it's it's a homicide, but often There's no criminal charges because it was so clearly unintended. Now, this is a whole legal analysis that I'm probably going to dedicate um, future podcasts to, in particular with difficult cases or some of the uh, quote-unquote famous cases that I'll be reviewing. Um, Homicide is, um, you know, the public tends to equate that with murder, um, but it's not necessarily murder itself because there there are various degrees of murder charges that come from the legal side. So I've done many cases where um, the manner of death was homicide, but there were no charges. Um, I guess the classic case would be somebody, uh, and I I have only seen this a handful of times, but somebody breaking into somebody else's home and then the homeowner kills the intruder. That is going to be a homicide, but the homeowner will not be charged um, in most cases. All right, so the last cause of death um, is what we call undetermined. And that's kind of, um, in in a way, I guess it could be considered a wastebasket term. When you can't do natural accident, suicide, or homicide, then therefore it must be undetermined. And um, I guess one of the misconceptions about autopsy is that we can look at every single body and instantly see the cause of death as soon as we do the autopsy. And the fact is, there are many ways to die in which you can't really see an obvious cause. Um, For instance, if someone were to have a seizure, unwitnessed seizure, um, that is uh, from epilepsy, you will uh, do the autopsy and there will be some nonspecific findings, things like uh, pulmonary edema. Sometimes you'll see brain edema. Um, But you won't necessarily see anything at autopsy that indicates um, a definite pathologic cause of death. Um, Very often in autopsy uh, of seizure patients, the brain looks absolutely normal. Most people don't realize that. And occasionally you can have um, an injury to the brain and scar tissue and things like that, which can trigger seizures, but... um, That's just one example. Um, We will go over many different types of um, undetermined deaths. Um, I think for me, it's mostly things like decomposed bodies that don't have obvious trauma. So um, one note is that there is a sixth category of manner, which is only used in very few jurisdictions, and it's basically complications of medical therapy. So we don't use that where I work. But in some places, I think in New York City, they use that. um, But the idea is that somebody goes in for a surgery, let's say something simple like a gallbladder surgery, and um, there is um, some kind of surgical complication or anesthetic complication, the patient dies. It was not expected. And this can sometimes be called complications of medical therapy. Uh, because I don't use that particular uh, manner of death and I have no experience assigning those, um, I'm not going to talk about it too much. But it's worth knowing uh, for you guys to, to know that it's out there in some jurisdictions and that in the future there may be a more widespread adoption of that uh, manner of death language. I must say that cases that Uh, in which the patient dies um, shortly after a surgical or other medical procedure can be quite difficult to sign out because oftentimes uh, family is looking for litigation and um, it can be confusing when you sign out something as a natural manner of death um, and then folks want to sue. It usually doesn't cause a problem because these things are explained in court. That's why we go to court and explain on the stand but um, the classic example, like I said, if you have a gallbladder case, somebody dies, but then I do an autopsy and look at the heart and they have a 99% occlusion of their uh, left anterior descending artery, then you can pretty safely say that it was underlying heart disease that was triggered um, as the cause of death, as the you know the underlying cause of death, and that um, we don't know what role that the gallbladder surgery played in it. Now, that's just a hypothetical there, although I do see it more often than I would like. Not necessarily with gallbladder, by the way. That's just the first thing that came to my mind. Um, But I think uh, that covers manner pretty well. So um, think about the manner of death. Um, We're going to um, basically go over uh, some cases here uh, in a few minutes, but I also wanted to now... uh, talk about cause of death. Okay, so c- remember, manner is a general category. Cause is very specific entity. This is, uh, by definition, the kind of underlying anatomical um, or physiologic, I guess, um, disease that led to the death. Um, and now, in, in, cur- in the case of natural deaths, that is. So, you know, for instance, like I, I always bring up atherosclerotic or hypertensive Cardiovascular disease. Those are uh, the most common types of natural deaths I see, but it was also included could be something like pulmonary embolism. Um, and, you know, this is the specific cause. So, what you do is you say that it's this particular type of disease, whether it's chronic liver disease, and then in the manner you would do natural. So, uh, for accidental deaths in cause, it's usually related to the type of force that occurs. Um, That's not always true, but with a motor vehicle accident, it's often blunt force trauma. You can also see what's called shearing trauma. Shearing is kind of like a ripping. Um, Sharp force trauma would be um, like anything sharp, glass, metal blades, things like that, anything that cuts. And then also in the accident, uh, cause of death, like I said, intoxications will be the most common. So that would be something like, you know, fentanyl or morphine, ethanol or alcohol. And then again, all sorts of, of things with, uh, with accident on cause, you could go on and on, um, high voltage, electrocution, envenomation by, you know, um, snake or, you know, uh, other thing like that. So, um, I think you get the point that it's, you know, we're getting specific. And again, when we go to suicide and homicide, these often have very similar causes of death. So you can have a gunshot wound to the head, that's a suicide, but also a gunshot wound to the head, that's a homicide. And, um, you know, with suicide and homicide, again, I said gunshot wound, you also have asphyxial type deaths. We talked about an asphyxial death in the first episode of this season. And, um, But, you know, intoxications can also occur for suicides and uh, less commonly for homicides. I mean, you basically have to have somebody inject another person and then be able to improve uh, to prove that I say inject. But um, that was the first thing that came to my mind. You can poison somebody's food or drink and do the same thing. Um, But the cause is, again, specific. And I'm going to go a little more detail uh, toward the end of this podcast about cause because I want you to understand how um, we logically assign cause and also kind of, you know, how that came about and why it's relevant uh, in particular to this recent pandemic. All right, so let's do a couple of cases from my archives. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give a clinical scenario. They're going to be short. And as I give the clinical scenario, I want you to think about what the manner of death is going to be. And we'll do the cause and manner. So the first one, 72-year-old male leaves home and he says to his wife, I'm going to go to town. And he drives on a country road, you know, a few miles into town, typical scenario where I work in Indiana. And then later the car is found and it's broken through a fence and it's kind of in a ditch. And um, EMS responds, police respond, um, and this man is dead in the car. He appears to have some injuries, and um, at that point he has brought in for an autopsy because um, it's not exactly clear what happened. And we also want to do an autopsy in that case in, in, uh, just in case uh, there ended up being some kind of foul play. Maybe he was run off the road by somebody. Uh, maybe there was some implement in the road that caused him to swerve. And so we need to know if we're looking at a criminal case or if we're looking at something more simple. So the autopsy occurs, and what we see injury-wise is some minor scrapes. We see some scrapes on the head, a couple little lacerations, broken arm, possibly a broken leg, uh, but nothing that looks on the external exam like he is going to be, have been killed from the accident. Now, of course, um, motor vehicle accidents can be um, horrifically violent, and then when you find the person, they don't look that bad from an injury perspective, and then you open up and you see that in fact they have a massive basal skull fracture, or perhaps the neck is broken, um, a very, um, what we call closed head injury, where there's a lot of blood inside the cranial vault. So we do the autopsy, and the we go into the chest, of course the chest is where I start my autopsies, chest and abdomen, open the body, I often take the heart and lungs first, And while examining the heart, I find a nearly a 100% occlusion. Some people like the word stenosis, basically blockage of the left anterior descending artery, which is the coronary artery on the front of the heart. Probably the most common um, type of occlusion on the heart. We also can see it in the other vessels, but this is the one that supplies a lot of Oxygen and blood to the left ventricle, which is the main side of the heart that pumps to the rest of your body. So, as I cut on the surface of the heart, I find this really terrible occlusion. And now I'm starting to think that maybe he had um, some kind of heart related problem. Well, once we cut the heart into slices, then we can see the physical tissue of the heart. Now, heart tissue is kind of a reddish brown color. It's soft. Um, It's a type of muscle, so it's not too different from a a skeletal muscle or just a kind of piece of meat, really. Um, But when you see things in the wall of the muscle that are discolored, that is a clue. And I, in this case, saw a tan yellow to tan white area in the left ventricle. It was pretty sizable, maybe three centimeters, two or three centimeters. And this is by definition a myocardial infarction. This is a heart attack. And um, then in talking to the wife, it is revealed that this man had been complaining of quote-unquote heartburn and had been taking a lot of Tums and things like that. So what happened is, I guess, think about what, what is the manner in this case. And the manner in this case is natural. This is a natural death. So The man was found in an accident, and I know many people are thinking, well, then it must be an accident, right? Not always, because why did the accident occur? And also, the autopsy did not reveal any injuries that could have killed the man. A broken arm and broken leg will not kill, uh, generally, will not kill a person in an accident. And so what happened in this case is that the man was already in the midst of a myocardial infarction, of a heart attack. And when your body's, when your heart is um, deprived of oxygen like that, it, it becomes, um, the word we use is arrhythmogenic, which means it's easier to go into a cardiac arrhythmia. And so the man was driving clearly, went into a cardiac arrhythmia, lost consciousness, and went off the road. And so in this case, we're able to tell the family that it wasn't a motor vehicle um, accident. That is killed him. It wasn't any foul play. It was just an underlying natural death. Now, again, I said this is, um, you know, the reason why we do autopsies is we have to do the manner because sometimes it can be relevant with things like um, insurance. So there can be an accidental insurance or an accidental clause in an insurance, which pays out more. And so by ruling out accident in this case, And that was not, I'm not talking about the insurance issues on this case. I'm telling you in general that that is an important element. Um, So that's going to be a natural death. Now, the next case um, is kind of a weird case, but this guy is uh, 19 years old. He's hanging out with his friends, and they're doing what 19-year-olds do. They're kind of hanging out, playing cards. I think there was a little bit of drinking going on, and this man suddenly... This young man suddenly pulls a gun from his jacket, small pistol, and, you know, he's kind of brandishing it, you know, and his friends are a little bit concerned, like, hey hey man, put that gun away, Uh, you're going to, you know, you're going to get hurt, somebody's going to get hurt, and then he just suddenly, uh, kind of as a joke, so to speak, puts the gun to his head, pulls the trigger, and there was a bullet in the chamber and uh, only one bullet, apparently. I don't know if he had planned to play Russian roulette or something, but it turned out that the gun actually did contain one bullet, and it passed through his head. He had no um, history of depression or any what we call suicidal ideation. Suicidal ideation is um, talking about wanting to kill yourself, and um, he shot himself right in the head, right there, and this, uh, this case was... Uh, very uh, traumatic for those who were sitting there, obviously. And so I want you to think about the cause is obvious, right? So the cause is the gunshot wound of the head. But what is the manner? If this man did not intend, uh, if this was not a suicidal man, then what do you call it? Do you call it an accident or do you call it a suicide? Well, there are some people who might argue over this case, But most forensic pathologists will call this a suicide, even though there wasn't a uh, declaration. There wasn't a, hey, guys, I'm going to kill myself. There wasn't a history of depression. There wasn't a note or anything like that. And it was explained to me um, throughout my pathology training that in that situation, when you take that level of risk that could cause death, it is tantamount to a suicide. And so that it should be signed out as a suicide. Now, Russian roulette in its own – by the way, if you're not familiar with that term, uh, Russian roulette, that refers to putting uh, one bullet into the chamber of a revolver, spinning the revolver, and then pulling the trigger. And so it's like a game of chance in which um, the more times you pull the trigger, the more likely you are to die. Uh, In those um, Russian roulette cases, most people will sign those out as suicides – and, um, it's the kind of thing that you think of almost like, um, on a movie or a TV show, but it's surprisingly common. Um, I would say that I've had at least one Russian roulette case every year since probably 2015. So, um, you know, be careful, uh, it, it definitely not to trifle with, uh, a weapon like that some people are inherently reckless or perhaps intoxicated and these these cases occur in that situation um but the this is a gunshot wound to the head signed out as a suicide and um unfortunately common i mean relatively common we're n- we're not talking about you know happens once a month but i think if you see somebody once a year playing a russian roulette that's that seems like a lot to me um so the next case uh, now this one is probably um in terms of manner the most controversial to assign. So 29-year-old female history of depression and anxiety for much of her adult life and a known user of intravenous drugs so things like heroin or fentanyl. Um she is found in her room, the room is secured. Um and she is dead there is there's no reviving her there's drug paraphernalia nearby things like um, foil you'll sometimes find the drug wrapped in foil Um, often you'll find hypodermic syringes um, and uh, you know that's what we call drug paraphernalia sometimes a rubber uh, a piece of rubber to wrap around the arm in order to make the veins more prominent she um, on autopsy you know we see the track marks on the arms we sometimes see cerebral edema, that's swelling of the brain, and almost always we will see pulmonary congestion. Um, these individuals that uh, take opiate medications, um, you know, they abuse them. Often we'll see at the nose and mouth what's called a foam cone, and it's literally what it sounds like. And it is a a cone or an area of foam usually white or tan or pink foam at the nose and mouth and what happens is is that um, opiate medications um, cause cardiorespiratory depression so um, not only well of the heart and lungs the heart and lungs um, don't function as well and also centrally in the brain and so you get a massive pulmonary edema sometimes and um, when that happens the 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 fluid in the lungs just form like a foam and it goes into the airways and then it comes all the way out of the mouth. So a pretty typical looking case here for a drug OD. So in this case, you can't really assign cause and uh, manner definitively at the time of autopsy because this is a case where toxicology matters probably the most. So we draw blood toxicology and we send it and um, it turns out, that this lady had, um, fentanyl in her system about five times normal. Um, the normal range for fentanyl, if you were to, um, be treated with it in a hospital or, or, you know, for some other reason would be one to three nanograms per milliliter of blood. In this case, she was about 15 nanograms per milliliter. And so, um, you know, you can, you can die pretty much at the end of the, uh, right as you get out of the normal range, sometimes I'll find people who have a four or five nanogram um, fentanyl. And anyway, fentanyl, as you know, a uh, powerful opiate, about 200 times more powerful than morphine, they say. And uh, not an uncommon finding, I would say, is for IV drug users, the most common um, finding uh, is now fentanyl, and it has been for the last two years. It's actually quite uncommon for me to find heroin, uh, just heroin. Um, heroin, of course, chemically is diacetyl morphine, and, uh, and it breaks into two molecules in your body, and, and you can find that in the, the blood and in the urine. Um, I hardly ever see morphine anymore. It's usually, um, uh, or heroin or morphine, it's usually just fentanyl. So, what's the manner of death in this case? She was depressed. She had always been depressed, it seems. Um, so was it a suicide? Well, was it an accident? Did she intend to kill herself? Is it undetermined? Or did somebody else inject her and then it's a homicide? These cases are, are I think, different jurisdictions sign these cases out differently. Um, more, um, There's a wide range of difference, I think, nationally here than there is with other kinds of deaths. It also depends on what the local prosecutor's office wants. Um, In in these cases, when there's no clear evidence of foul play, seen as secure, I usually sign them out as accidents, and I'll call them an acute um, fentanyl intoxication or sometimes an acute mixed drug intoxication, because sometimes they'll have alcohol, fentanyl, cocaine, morphine, things like that in there, sometimes Xanax. And I usually, um, I'd say nine times out of 10, these end up being accidents. Rarely you will find intent in the form of a note or in the form of a, uh, let's say, a text message. Sometimes these people will text their friends or their family, um, sort of the goodbye cruel world note, and then you find them with an overdose. Well, that one you can safely call suicide. But uh, there are some pathologists who say undetermined on these, no matter what because they say you can't determine the intent of that person. They may have been feeling particularly depressed when they got, you know, they got their drugs that day and they were getting ready to inject them. And they said, this is it. I am actually going to kill myself. But you can't prove that. You can't prove if they were, had intent or didn't have intent. And so therefore they will sign these as undetermined. One pathologist I know, um, that I've known for quite a long time. He he does these as undetermined and then lets the prosecutor's office determine whether there's any a kind of legal action. Um, you know, I'm not saying that's right or wrong. It's just different. Forensic pathologists do it different uh, ways depending on what evidence they have. And I know there have been some. There's been some movement to charge these as homicides. Some, uh, I think. There was a story a couple of years ago. I think it may have been a, a county in Pennsylvania or somewhere, where they were wanting they were doing these as homicides, because ultimately a person uh, buys the drug from someone who provides it, and therefore that person puts them into peril, and then they try to charge them with some kind of murder or something. Um, and I don't know the success rate of those kinds of uh, charges you'll have to you'll have to tell me if you're in the legal field or you're in the investigation field, uh, but I personally have not testified at any cases that have been, been a drug overdose type case. My state did pass a law um I think it was in t- maybe 2018, where they were going to start charging the, uh, charging the dealer if they could prove who the dealer was and that the person used the drug from that dealer. So that's kind of a new thing that's happening. And that's why drug overdose cases can basically get any manner of death with the exception of natural. So um, kind of a-, a lot going on there with that one. But um, I'm sure you have many questions and we can talk about that next time. So next case is going to be a 31-year-old male with his buddy. They were playing video games. Um very common to find people um you know drinking and doing things while they're playing video games with their friends. Sometimes they get hurt. Well, in this case, um the guys were I think they were ex uh military guys and they were playing Call of Duty or one of those games and um they were together in the same room. One of them had a high-powered rifle. Um, I believe it was an AR-15, actually, which was a it's a high-velocity uh, rifle, which you've heard that uh, term many times. Uh, AR-15, and he grabbed it and he pointed it at his friend, um, and I guess it was kind of jokingly, you know, uh, miming shooting him with the gun and again never point a gun at somebody because you know what happened here uh, the gun discharged and hit him right in the head at close uh, pretty close range probably within a few feet and you have to understand that that is uh, going to be an instant death if it hits unless it's a you know just a grazing wound but if it if it hits the the bulk of the head or even the body here you're going to have death because um, we're going to talk about gunshot wound physics a lot during the the run of this podcast, but the high powered rifles, the hunting rifles, AR-15s, or um, some military issue weapons like machine guns, which are generally not available um, to the general public, um, but AR-15 and other related rifles are quite common and quite available. The idea is that they have a very high velocity, what we call muzzle velocity, and when you have a very high velocity you also have a very high kinetic energy um, for any given mass. And so if you've taken physics class you remember uh, the equation for kinetic energy, one half mass times velocity squared. So the higher your velocity goes and you're going to square that velocity you're going to have a lot of kinetic energy. Well, in a close-range shot from a high-powered rifle, you can almost get um, exp- what I call an explosive head wound, and literally the head kind of explodes. So this was a, an instant death gunshot wound of the head. But what do you call it? Was it an accident? He didn't. Did he intend to kill him? Or is it a homicide in this case? Well, I believe that this case is a homicide um, this is a uh, in the same way that we think about the person playing Russian roulette um, putting the gun to their head you're taking uh, you know significant risk pointing a a high-powered weapon at somebody to if the gun discharges they are going to die because um, a weapon high powered weapon such as this if he had been hit in the chest or if he had been hit in the abdomen uh, he might have had a better chance of surviving the abdomen, but certainly the chest, again, you're going to have nearly an instant death. So the the um, the risk of dying in that scenario, if uh, you're the person who's being pointed at, is significant. And so um, every case I've ever seen like this, not only my personal cases, but other cases, the forensic pathologists always assign these as homicides. Um, the classic scenario usually isn't, um, guy, they're not usually guys this age. Usually they're kids. They're usually like, um, 16 year old, 15 year old. This is the first gun they've ever gotten, or th- maybe they found it. I've, made, I've seen a couple where they found a gun. Sometimes they've stolen a gun and they're brandishing it, pointing it at people. Boom. The gun goes off. These are homicides. Um, but remember homicides aren't always murders because in this case, the discharge is not an intentional, it's not intentional to kill them. It's recklessness. And so, um, the legal system then takes these cases and they decide whether this is a reckless homicide or is this a manslaughter? Was there any sort of intent? And that's usually based on interviews and comments from witnesses, things like that. So, um, you know, um, even though the intent isn't there. I mean, these guys apparently were very good friends. um, And, you know, I guess he was horrified. He was completely in shock. um, Clearly didn't mean to do it. But see, I have to do things from a medical perspective. Like, what is the medical legal definition? And by definition, this is death at the hands of another. So that is a homicide. Now, the next case and the last case um, we're basically going to talk about in terms of the manners is um this is a pretty i think straightforward one and and relatively common scenario um I'm called for an autopsy for remains that are found in the woods these remains are found human remains there's no indication of guns or weapons nearby um there's no indication immediately that there was any kind of foul play and in this uh body that we get we can't tell how old it is um you know, because most of the flesh is missing. We can see some of the clothing. Um, there's a very um, uh, small amount of flesh usually on the feet uh, if they're wearing shoes because the, the shoes are protecting um, the feet. Um, usually exposed areas are eaten by animals, whether we have um, maggots and flies that have, uh, you know, kind of generated from them and the tissue's been kind of, you know, destroyed or consumed, I guess, or scavengers, animals in the woods who are just looking for something to eat. They chew all the flesh off. Um, the only remaining flesh on this man, uh, sometimes the um, under a thick jacket or something like that, you'll have the skin will turn out into like a leathery consistency. And so there just wasn't much to go on. Internally, The there's again, not much to go on because um, animals and, and insects love human organs or animal organs. It doesn't really matter what what the the source is. It's just, for them, it's nutrition. And so no organs to speak of, and the brain casing, the the actual cranial vault, usually contains kind of a a thick, grayish-green remnant of the brain. So can you assign a natural death in this case? You cannot. So what we do is we do x-rays, or sometimes people will do CT scans if they're fortunate enough. Um, where I work, we have to do x-rays of the entire body. So we have many different x-rays to look at from head to toe. And what we're looking for in those x-rays is we're looking for opaque material. And that means anything that uh, the x-rays cannot pass through. And what I'm getting at is bullets. Bullets would be the most common. And then secondly would be something like a, a broken end of a knife if this were, we were looking at a homicide case. Well, in this case, this person did not have any evidence of bullets or knives or anything in the body. And so where do you go from here? What do you call this? We don't have any indication of foul play. Um, we don't have any indication that this man killed himself. Uh, because what would he have killed himself with? He would have had to have used some implement, and there's nothing there. There's no organs remaining for natural death uh, determination. And so, and we don't know if it was an accident. You know, uh, certainly uh, a person could have fallen out of a tree and broke their neck, but in theory, we should be able to see those fractures in the neck. And unfortunately, we see this uh, at least a couple times a year where we have remains and we just can't assign a manner. And when that happens, we use undetermined. Now, Uh, if you look statistically, about 5% of all forensic autopsies are considered uh, to be undetermined manner. And the lion's share of those are cases that are like decomposed bodies. However, uh, it's important to note, and we'll talk about this in the future, um, that you can have a completely normal autopsy and you can't assign a manner of death. And I, I absolutely hate those cases because I like to know the answer. That's the reason why I went into pathology, because I like knowing the answer to the question. But sometimes people have conditions such as um, a, like a cardiac arrhythmia, for instance, a genetic cardiac arrhythmia that I can't prove that it's a genetic uh, at the time that it's signed out. Now, later, if you do genetic studies and you're able to find uh, the reason why the arrhythmia occurred, you can go back. And you can uh, you can make the cause of death, you know, some kind of hereditary, um, you know, cardiomyopathy or something. But the point is, you can't always find the cause of death because it's not always anatomical. Sometimes the cause of death is physiological, meaning it has to do with um, something um, to do with, you know, like the physiology of the body, like electrolytes, potassium, high potassium, for instance, can cause... Um, heart arrhythmia, and seizure can cause death. And so these are things that you don't see because they're chemical in nature. And as the body uh, degrades, immediately after death, it starts, and then it gets worse as time goes on. Those tests are not reliable. I can't just draw a potassium on a body that's been dead for 20 hours and and look at the results because potassium itself is an intracellular ion. And so as the cells die, they break open and they and all the potassium rushes out. So we'll talk about more complex manners and causes in the future, but I just wanted you to get kind of a feel for this. And um, so, you know, basically at this point, you've, you you kind of understand what the manner, I think you understand pretty well what the manner is at this point, but let's talk really briefly about cause. The way that death is certified in this country um, was... It's kind of been done the same way for the, the previous uh, many years, 70 years almost, uh, a little more than that. 1948, there was a commission that kind of determined how to determine the cause of death and how to fill out death certificates. And the this is uh, widely known. It's not, um, I don't think it's widely taught in medical schools, but all physicians have to know how to sign out death certificates. And of course, I don't personally do death certificates in my job. That's the job of the coroner. But I do the uh, cause and manner of death. And then I work with the coroner to arrive at the the cause on the death certificate when that happens. Um, so the term here that's used to determine the cause is what's called proximate cause of death. And that is the underlying condition which initiates the lethal chain of events, okay? Initiates is the key because it is the first pathologic underlying condition that results in the death of the patient, okay? this ca- These causes are, um, you can find them in a list called the ICD. Many of you have heard of ICD-9, ICD-10, and that stands for the International Classification of Diseases. So all the different Causes of death and diseases that can be responsible are, are present in there. And so, you know, um, the example, uh, let me just give you an example. So a, a man might die, or a man or woman might die of a heart attack. And the technical term for that is myocardial infarction. But if the reason for that heart attack is atherosclerosis lining the coronary vessels, the cause of death in that case, you go back to the ICD And it's actually atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. So it's the underlying cause was lipid deposition and scarring of the coronary vessel, which then occludes the vessel to a degree that causes the heart muscle to be starved of oxygen. And then that heart muscle dies. And that is the myocardial infarction. So when I do cases like that, a lot of times I'll say, The general, which is atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, and then in parentheses I'll say myocardial infarction, and then the manner of death is natural. So we also have to differentiate with the immediate cause of death versus the, um, you know, the proximal cause of death. So here's here's a little quick case. Um, I had a, a case of a girl who was car surfing. Okay, so there were some teenagers. And these, uh, the girl was on top of the car, standing on top of the car, car surfing. And I think somebody driving the car hit the brakes, which is the classic thing to do because that's supposed to be funny. But unfortunately, people die doing that. I've had multiple car surf- surfing deaths. Um, and the person, uh, the girl flew off, hit her head on the ground, was was gravely wounded. Everyone could see that she was badly hurt. EMS comes, takes her to the hospital, and... Uh, Neurosurgery gets involved. They try to um, evacuate a subdural hemorrhage, uh, but she's too badly injured. She stays on a ventilator for four days. She develops pneumonia, and she dies. So bronchopneumonia in the lungs, very commonly associated with long terms of ventilation, is the the immediate cause of death. This is what caused her to be um, unable to continue. But what caused it? Why is she there? She's there because of the proximate cause of death, which is she fell from a car and incurred blunt force trauma to the head. So in this case, the cause would be blunt force trauma of the head, and the manner would be accident. So she dies of a pneumonia, which is not an accident, but it happens because of the accident. Now, we can continue to you know, parse this out and get more and more specific, you get into the next level, which is called the mechanism of death. We usually don't talk about mechanism of death in autopsy reports. Usually that comes out um, if a family member were to contact me and say, I don't understand why my loved one died. And I explain to them the exact physiologic mechanism of why they died. Um, Secondly, in court, when I am in court, very often I have to talk about the physiologic causes of death or the so-called mechanism of death. And that's so juries and the the attorneys themselves can understand how the death occurred each step. Um, So we do not mention mechanism of death in the autopsy report on the cause and manner, but some pathologists, like myself, will write notes at the end of the report to explain it um, if it's not clear. Because sometimes family members, you know, they need that explanation. Attorneys will need that explanation. So I wanted to touch really briefly, now that you understand how cause is determined, and it's been determined the same way um, since 1948, the recent pandemic um, with uh, COVID-19, um, the coronavirus, um, there's been a lot of controversy. You see a lot of people saying that doctors are falsifying um, you know, death certificates to falsely inflate the numbers. Um, well, first of all, I mean, I can talk a lot about why that would be a bad idea, um, statistically speaking, but also because you you could actually risk losing your job and losing your license for doing something like that. But the idea in this particular disease, um, well, okay, we'll get to that in just a moment. Um, a lot of people are saying that um, heart attacks and strokes are being uh, signed out as COVID cases. Um, and that makes no sense in their mind because, it, you know, COVID's a virus and a heart attack is something different. Um, and usually these are people kind of like in your right, in your Facebook feed or, you know, people you talk to um, and they they say that it's all uh, being fixed, that the numbers are falsely elevated. Well, what we've learned from autopsies of COVID patients and also from clinical, a lot of clinical experience now, because we have over 3 million cases, is that the virus itself is what we call angiopathic. Angio means blood vessel, and um, pathic, of course, meaning disease. Uh, The idea is that this virus, this coronavirus, is very, very unusual in that it actually directly infects blood vessels. And when that happens, causes clots. A lot of the autopsies we're seeing um, with COVID patients have blood clots, they have pulmonary embolism, they have strokes, they have heart attacks. So the idea is that when that virus gets, uh, the viral load in your body gets too high in the bloodstream, it's infecting blood vessels. When the blood vessel becomes infected it becomes damaged because um, that's how the virus reproduces is it kills the cell that it's in And when the cell bursts, then you have a little bit of damage and then you have some platelets come in and you form a clot. So clotting then is the underlying mechanism for heart attacks and for strokes and for pulmonary embolisms. So the idea is that COVID-19 infection is the proximate cause of death. It is initiating the chain of events that results in the clinical condition. Um... As a side note, there are people also saying that if somebody dies in a car accident but they're tested and then the test is COVID positive, it's signed out as COVID. Or if somebody is murdered and they're tested as COVID positive, then it's signed out as COVID. So that is actually just a lie. That is incorrect because the manner of death here is what we're talking about the manner in the case of a car accident or, um, you know, a murder is going to be different. It's going to be an accident. It's going to be a homicide or even a suicide. Um, we can only sign out a case as COVID if it is a natural death. It literally cannot be signed out any other way. So we're only talking about natural deaths. We're only talking about one of the five manners and of those uh, five, the natural can be, uh, in this case, signed out as COVID. If um, the patient does present with a stroke and is positive for COVID, you can sign it out as COVID. Moreover, um, it's important from an epidemiologic perspective because this virus is one of the most um, infectious viruses we have seen since um, probably measles. And measles is one of the most infectious um, respiratory viruses of all time. This virus is much more infectious than flu. The idea being, if a case is signed out uh, reasonably with reasonable confidence as COVID-related, that is important because this is contagious. We need to know the degree of contagion in the society. Um, if it is signed out as a stroke and you ignore the COVID. Okay, stroke is not contagious. Heart attack is not contagious. Diabetes and mellitus is not contagious. Pulmonary embolism is not contagious. It doesn't help the public health um, aspect, and so um, you have to understand that this is both a uh, this is a public health nightmare, but also um, this helps us track. Now, I personally have not signed out any COVID cases. And I hope that that's the case for a long while. Um, In my area, these cases, if they're not considered to be essential autopsies, they are sent for um, directly to the funeral home without an autopsy. So I have not personally been involved in signing out death certificates related to COVID. I'm telling you from an academic perspective, in the standards put in since 1948, that the proximate cause of death is the way that these are signed out. And, um, I think that it's pretty reasonable really. Um, the other thing you have to, and I'm not trying to go on a rant here. This is not a rant. This is really just the facts, um, is that the virus was undoubtedly present before March. It was present, um, in January and February in high numbers. And it may have even been present in December. Um, during that time, there was a lot of cases signed out as stroke, heart attack, and pneumonia that were in fact COVID-related, but we didn't know yet because we didn't have the test capability. Um, so the for the the idea that the testing um, the overall numbers might be inflated, particularly the death numbers, is probably not true because there's a lot of underestimation of the COVID deaths from January and February. Um, and early March. In fact, if you look at the total deaths as reported by, um, you know, various epidemiologic um, entities, total deaths over that time were were way above what was normal for that time of year. So clearly there was something killing patients and virtually none of those were signed out as COVID cases. Now, it'll be interesting because from a research perspective, they might be able to go back and look at some of those cases and I've even wondered myself about my own cases. Did I do a COVID autopsy and not realize it? It's somewhat horrifying to think about because I'm, you know, you could be, could have been exposed to a deadly virus, but, um, to my knowledge, I haven't. And I, again, I hope it, it doesn't ever go that route. So, um, I think that covers cause and manner. Um, and so you can understand how these, um, terms are used, how they're determined, and you know um, in in just how many different permutations this was a very simple uh, example in this case. Um, we We went over for about an hour some of the very basic cause and manner stuff, but it can get really dicey and sometimes this is where you get expert witnesses who will come and agree disagree with a pathologist um, for the sake of you know, uh, a particular defendant or plaintiff, and um, and there are there are different ways to see cases um, but you know for the obvious ones like we've talked about, um, and the obvious ones that you already kind of know about in your mind, you know accident, motor vehicle accident, gunshot wound, homicide, hanging, suicide, that kind of thing, I think we can move forward um, with talking about more complex cases, and I can use the terminology, um, a little more freely now that we're kind of all on the same page. So with that being said, I'm happy to be back, um, doing the podcast. Um, I can't quote you an exact frequency. Um, I hope to keep, you know, doing it, uh, at least three times a month or three weeks a month, um, from here for the rest of the year. Uh, certainly I don't have any vacations planned, uh, thanks to the pandemic. So, um, Again, glad to be back. I hope you enjoyed this. We did go a little long today. Um, uh, if you have any questions, you can reach out to me. Again, my um Instagram is an called Anatomy and the Dead. Um, I also have a an Instagram page after called Knife After Death, but that's going to be more of like a production and like an art product related page when that time comes. Um, also on Facebook. And I'm around. It's it's easy to find me. So um if you have any questions, I'll try to get to them. I, I can't guarantee that I can get to every question. I, I try as hard as I can, but, uh, um, ultimately I still have a day job, sadly. And, um, therefore I only have limited time each day to kind of answer queries. So I hope you find this helpful. And, um, we will talk next time, um, about a, a topic I think you'll find very interesting. All right. Thank you.